this is obviously the first of the Torah cycle. I've been doing this for well over 20 years, 19 in this venue and before that in a home church. And there's always a temptation when you go through something year after year after year after year after year after year to sort of get complacent about it. And I got to tell you, every year I go through this, I always find something new. I always find something that I didn't know before and is inspiring and so forth. So I will suggest for those of you who have been sitting out there year after year after year after year, as we start over in the Torah, don't let yourself become complacent. Listen to it, study it, and enjoy it. I gave two sermons in a row last month. One is we finished up the fall feasts, where we talked about closing out the year and getting ready for the next year. And then after that, we talked about Yeshua's final instructions before he turned us loose. And one of the things is that he gave us the keys of the kingdom. Remember, I emphasized not the keys to the kingdom, but the keys of the kingdom. And the idea there is we have authority here on earth. And the things that we allow are allowed, and the things that we forbid are forbidden. We have that authority. And this Torah cycle, the beginning here, is the place where we first get that authority. Where God creates us and he says, you have dominion. Which means that if it gets out of line, you put it back into line. You fix it. That's the authority he gave us. Now, one of the things that the Bible is, is a book. Blinding flash of the obvious, right? And the fact that he gave us his instructions in a book is important. And as Ray famously said many years ago, and I have never forgotten, it's a book that can be understood by a fisherman or a shepherd. In other words, it is not a technical manual. It's not like a physics book or a chemistry book or something like that, which is full of detailed equations and so forth. Yet, in its brilliance, it is the best explanation of the creation of the universe that exists. Now, guys that are really smart, with lots of degrees after their name and so forth, spend a lot of time trying to understand the universe. And they have come up with all sorts of theories of how we got there. I will tell you, none of them is any better than Genesis 1. And I'm saying that as somebody who has studied that from a technical point of view, they aren't any better. In fact, most of them are worse because what they're trying to do is they're trying to explain things in the absence of God. In other words, they're trying to explain it as some kind of a mechanical thing that has no meaning. Now, what I want to talk to you about today are three things. I want to talk to you about context, relationship, and place. Those are all things that people need. You have to have context, you have to have relationships, and you have to know your place. That's what I want to talk about. And all of that is laid out for us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, context, first off. If you go to Ecclesiastes, and I will read it to you so you don't have to turn there. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So what God has done is he has built into us a need for context, eternity. 
Now, one of the things I'm fond of saying is you can't tell the purpose of a system from inside the system. If you are inside of a system, you can't tell why it exists. Meaning of the system has to come from outside of the system. And what God does in this book that he has given us is he has told us what the meaning of it all is. He has given us that information because that's something we need. And by the way, that's something with all these guys with the degrees after their names spend their entire lives trying to figure out because even though they deny God, many of them, not all of them, although many of them deny God, they still have this burning need for context. They have this burning need for meaning. They have to know what it all means. And the fact that they are spending their lives trying to study this and figure it out and figure out how it all works is a testament to the truth of Ecclesiastes. If it didn't matter, they wouldn't spend all their lives doing it. And the fact that they're studying it and trying to figure out how it works, Solomon figured that out thousands of years ago. And he wrote it down in a very pithy thing and said he has put eternity into man's heart. It's really very simple. So the first thing we need is context, as I said. Everything has a creator. God said, and it was. There is a creator. And that creator is intelligent. And that creator created all of this for a purpose. And there's an order in the creation. In other words, it's not just chaos. It's not just random. There's an order to everything. And the order is the order that is imposed upon it by an intelligent being, God. He had a purpose for making it. Nobody makes things without a reason. Anybody who makes things has a reason for making them. I mean, it may not be a very important reason. You know, you may just decide you need fried eggs in the morning. That's not cosmic, but you have a reason for doing it. And so the fact that it was made by someone, God, he has a reason for it. And there is a purpose within that creation for us. He made us for a reason. He had a reason for doing it. Just like the fried eggs in the morning, he has a reason. What that tells us is we now have context for our existence. And of course, as we've said many times, we also have dominion over the place, which means you're in charge, you are to care for it, you're to keep it running. When it gets out of line, you're to put it back in line. You're to fix it. So that's our context. Now, from this next chunk, I'm going to give credit for Rabbi Sachs because I didn't see it. This is one of these things that, wow, that's really cool this year. Didn't know that last year. Genesis 1 is impersonal. And if you notice, as Mike was reading the name of God, as he is creating all this thing, it's always Elohim. Elohim said, let there be light. And there was light. So the creation of this whole thing is just sort of, how do I describe it? Effortless. It doesn't seem to be any difficulty in that. Let there be light. Let there be water. Separate the waters. It's just all very impersonal and just boop, 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 boop. I just sort of did that and it didn't take any time at all. Wasn't any big deal. Actually, it took six days, but no big deal. Let's make this. Let's make that. It's just sort of imperial, if you will. Okay? In Genesis 2, that changes. The... The vision between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is this word toldot, and I've talked about that lots of times before. And it's a Hebrew word, and it's typically translated as these are the generations of, 
a better translation that makes more sense to me is this is what became of. So in Genesis 1, you have this sort of imperial, ah, let there be light, let there be skate creatures, let there be birds, let there be whatever. And Genesis 2 then is, this is what became of all that I made in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 2, God's actions become personal. God gets right down and he takes the dust of the earth with his hands and he forms it and molds it. It isn't dust, you know, organize yourself into a man. That isn't how it's said. What it says is God took the dust of the earth and he formed it into a man and then he breathed into it. This is not technical and impersonal, this is very personal. And the name that is used of God there changes. Now the name, starting in Genesis 2, is Jehovah Elohim. So he's still making stuff, Elohim, but he's doing it in a personal, relational way. And, oh, by the way, he's going to put man into the garden to be a gardener. And so what does he do? He himself becomes a gardener first. When you get put into the garden to be a gardener, you can look at God and you can say, God himself was a gardener, therefore gardening must be kind of important. Because he was willing to do it himself in order to make a place for us. There's always a tendency, we all have it, and not throwing rocks at anybody, to look at somebody who has what we regard as a better deal, and be envious. So if all you are is a gardener, well, gee, I can look at the king and somebody grows his vegetables for him. He doesn't have to get his hands dirty. I wish I was a king so I didn't have to get my hands dirty. And so what God is doing by making himself a gardener is he's saying that even that is important to him. And if it's important to him, it should be important to you. So what we're talking about here is a relationship. God is set up so that he has a relationship with us. You remember when he was making all this stuff back in Genesis 1, what did he say after he made everything? Behold, it was good. The first time he says something is not good is when? When he perceives that we're alone. He says it's not good for man to be alone. And what you hear is this loneliness. God created us in a way because he was lonely. In other words, God cannot make something to love him. That has to be from someone else. That has to be from someone who has free will. That has to be from someone who is separate from God. That's the only way you can get love or you can get respect is from someone who is not you. So when he says it's not good for man to be alone, what you can infer since we are made in his image is there's a loneliness there that caused him to make us. He made us for companionship. He made us as an object of love and as a source of love. He made something that he can love and he expects or hopes from us that we will reflect that love back to him. That's relationship.
And so the first thing that he says is not good is when man has no relationship with anybody except God. And so what he did is he made us a companion. I got this from Sachs. Again, it's one of these things that I've never seen in my life. The making of woman in Genesis 2 is very much like the creation. It's kind of impersonal. Man is put to sleep and his side is opened up and he says, this is woman. It isn't till later that he actually calls her Hava, Eve. At first, she is simply woman. Later on, she becomes Hava, Eve, my wife. I have named her. A relationship. Yeah. And the last thing that we'll talk about is place. And I thought of it in terms of place, and then I woke up this morning and tried to remember it. And what I remembered instead of place was purpose. So use whichever words you like. I'm thinking place. What does that mean? Anybody ever watched any of these old English period pieces? You don't know your place. Get back into your place. That's the sense that I'm using it. Okay? That's the sense that I'm using it. Not, not in an accusatory way. But the whole thing that man needs is a place or a purpose. You have to know where you fit within relationships. Some of us are doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs. Some of us are gardeners. And once you know your place, you can do what it is that you're called to do in that place, and you can take joy from it. And one of the things that is a great plague on our society right now is this lack of understanding of place. That will suggest that that goes back to the so-called Age of Enlightenment. When the country was formed, one of the problems with hierarchical structures is they get fossilized. And what you wind up doing is having people who are born into a place that get to think that, hey, this is mine by right. And I don't have to consider anybody else. And periodically that apple cart needs to get upset. Because otherwise what you have is fossilized hierarchy and oppression. So what happened in our revolution is we upset that apple cart where England, you know, with all their system of um, aristocracy and so forth, we upset that apple cart, and rightly so. But one of the things we said in that is all men are created equal, which is manifestly untrue in any sense that you can understand. And that has degraded, so now no one knows his place. And it's now up in the air whether you're a boy or a girl. You don't like the fact that God made you a boy. Fine, I'll go be a girl. You don't like the fact that God put him in charge? Well, I'll just upset it. In other words, there isn't any sense of place anymore. And that is, if you will, the opposite side of the pendulum from a strict caste system where everybody goes around with a colored dot on their forehead so you know just exactly what their place is and nobody ever changes place. So we started off being grumpy with the fact that everybody was in his place and those places had become ossified like fossils 
We threw that over, and now we're at the other end where nobody knows his place, and place doesn't matter. You can do anything you happen to want on a given day. Understand that those are sort of the two extremes, if you will. And what you want to be is, again, somewhere in the middle. So, context. How did all this happen? Relationship and place. Those are the things that people need. And what the scriptures do is they provide that information for us. That's why the Bible is important. Because it provides those three things for humanity because those three things are things we need and we cannot be healthy and we cannot function without them. Now, as I said earlier, it's not a technical manual. It's something, as Ray says, that can be understood by a shepherd or a fisherman. It's that clear and that simple is the wrong word because one of the things that anybody who has studied the Bible for any length of time has discovered that it's one of those things that you can spend your entire life studying and every time you go through it again you find something completely new that you never thought of. So in that sense, since it's written by the breath of God, it is a work of supreme genius. At one edge it's very simple. A child can understand it. At the other end, it is extremely rich and complex so that even the smartest of people can spend their lives studying it and not get bored. I mean, think about that. It's a work of genius. So as you go through, understand what it is you're dealing with. Now, the other thing it tells us is how do we get into this mess? And we are in a mess. By the way, we always have been in a mess. It's just that the mess changes periodically. So the fact that we're in a mess now is not unusual. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As we read through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, who is it that decides what's good? God said, let there be light, and he beheld it, and it was good. God said, let there be that, and it was good. And God says, it's not good for man to be alone. What's the first time when a person decides what's good? Eve saw the tree and it was good. So she was the one who decided it is good. And by the way, we get lots of nonsense about boys and girls, men and women. That's not what's going on here. Because remember, at the beginning, it is just man and woman. It isn't Eve, per se. It's feminine. And, and I've said many times before... Humanity, men, women, boys, girls, humanity are feminine to God's masculine. Masculine is initiative, feminine is executive. So the masculine initiates something, the feminine then takes that and executes and makes it happen. So this idea that Eve, the woman, saw it, that, that's not the point of the story. What the point of the story is, is Humanity, feminine to God's masculine, decided that we wanted to decide what was good, as opposed to taking God's guidance on that. So the problem is humanity decided for itself that something was good that God had not said it is good. And so when we decided it was good, we took an aid of it, and that's the beginning of our problem. So, where are we today? 
remember I said humanity, men, need context, relationship, and place or purpose. Well, in our culture, we are being deprived of context. The first thing is you have this continued assault on the validity of Scripture. you got really bright people that say, you don't believe those fairy tales, do you? And because they are really bright people and they're very articulate, they lead many people astray. If you look at what's going on in our country right now, you've got mobs of people running around pulling down statues. That's depriving you of context. In other words, your history gives you a context for who you are and what your place is. So what's happening in our society now is the context is being systematically destroyed. You may be really, really grumpy that the United States had slaves 200 years ago. That may make you really grumpy. Okay, be really grumpy. But understand that that is where we came from. And without knowing where you came from, you have no idea where you are. The second thing that's going on today is this idea that you can be anything you want to be. This is probably 40s generation, 50s generation, which I'm from. Anybody can grow up to be president, right? You all heard that. It's nonsense, but you've all heard it, right? And the idea there is aspirational, that you should look for accomplishment and meaning in your life, and if you work hard at it, you can be great. That's a good message. Anybody can be president is a dumb message, because God himself sets us into places. So, for example, let's say that you are really, really, really good at Torah and you want to be a priest. Can you be a priest? Not unless your daddy was a priest. That's the way it works. So there are limits and structure into which we must fit ourselves. And within that, there's great freedom. But when you try and destroy that structure and you try and get rid of it, what you have is what we've got now, which is approaching chaos. One of the things that I think is ironically funny, if you've been paying attention to the news, trannies have been competing against women in sports. I mean, it's just absurd. Different hormones, different structure, different everything. And there's a reason why there's men and women's sports. The fact that somebody decides, well, I want to go to the state finals and I can't do it as a guy, but if I compete against the girls, I can do it. And they do. That's absurd. And it comes from this idea you can be anything you want. And of course the flip side of that is you have women who decide they want to be infantrymen. They're not designed to do that. Doesn't mean they're not smart, doesn't mean that they're not strong, but an 18-year-old woman, God bless her, in a bayonet fight with an 18-year-old guy is most likely going to lose. Just because of hormones. It's just the way it works. And the fact that you're grumpy about it doesn't change the way it works. The final thing that we are, having been deprived of context, having been deprived of place, is we are losing relationships. You know, the cliche, everybody walking around staring at his phone, we have never been more lonely in our existence. We are better connected electronically than has ever happened in the past, and we are far more lonely than we've ever been. And you have these people that are walking around 
afraid of missing something on their phone or sitting in their basement looking at a screen, and they're very lonely because they've been deprived of relationship. So, as you go through this year, learning more and more about the Word of God, understand that in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, you've got everything that you need. And one of the things I will suggest to you is you ought to have confidence when you get up against these loud-mouthed atheists to be able to stand up and say, what you believe is wrong. Everything that you need is in Genesis. And Genesis is true. And it's true from the perspective of the brightest scientist in the world to the simplest fisherman. It is true. And you can be confident of that. You need not be ashamed. You need not apologize. You need not sort of hold your head down and say, well, I believe in this fairy tale. It isn't a fairy tale. It's true. And take that truth out to people who are lonely, people who don't know what their place is, people who don't understand the context for their lives and so are miserable. Take that out to them. Assure them that God loves you. He has a reason why he made you. And there's a relationship out there for you. One of my very, very favorite phrases, my wife and I say this all the time, is we look at odd couples walking by. For every little girl frog, there's a little boy frog. And you look at people, what does she see in him or vice versa? And just understand, for every little girl frog, there's a little boy frog out there. There's a relationship for everybody. There's meaning for everybody. There's a place for everybody. Sometimes it's hard to find it, but there is a place. And you can assure these people that God has a purpose for them. Please do so.